Hello, I'm Kate Fitzgerald from the Learning Hack team, welcoming you to a new episode of Great Minds on Learning. In this highly acclaimed series, Professor Donald Clark, internationally famous author, blogger and entrepreneur, joins John Helmer to explore two and a half thousand years of thought and theorising about learning from the Greeks to the geeks. This episode covers a group of 20th century thinkers and educationalists in both northern and southern hemispheres who developed a variety of alternative visions for schools. Inspired by Enlightenment figures like Rousseau and the German idealists who came after them, they nevertheless reacted against the strict and regimented so-called Prussian system of education that had become the mainstream. They incorporated ideas from the burgeoning field of psychology and also, in the case of Rudolf Steiner, a strong element of mysticism. So welcome everybody to this episode of Great Minds on Learning. I'm here with my co-host Donald Clark as usual. This time we're doing schools. In particular, we want to focus on 20th century theorists whose ideas and practice varied significantly from the mainstream when it came to school education. So what was that mainstream, I hear you ask, and where did it come from? Well, as we discovered in episode 26, a very great deal of what we now take as normative in education systems around the world emanated from the writings of German idealist philosophers. That's Kant, Hegel, but especially Herbart and von Humboldt. Uh, there's a Herbartian system and a Humboldtian system. Altogether, um, this is what we call the Prussian system of education. And we know it well, all of us, even if we don't recognize that particular term. It gave us teacher training, set lesson times controlled by a bell, standardized curricula or curriculums, and regular school inspections. The Prussians invented Ofsted. Thank you very much. That was the mainstream. Roughly speaking, that's what our theorists were reacting against. And also in this regard, it's worth mentioning the Arnolds, uh, particularly Thomas Arnold, headmaster of rugby school from 1828 to 1841, and his son, Matthew Arnold. Now, this might seem a bit parochial as they're Brits, but in fact, um, the Arnolds had a, a, a worldwide effect, especially Thomas Arnold. Thomas Arnold reformed the public schools in Great Britain um, with innovations like prefects and the house system. Uh, during the 18th century, public schools were notorious for riots, town versus gown face-offs, pitched battles between masters and pupils, uh, I'm not kidding, and all sorts of uh, uh, abuse of, of, of the children and the, and the community in general. Uh, it was a very good episode, a couple of episodes um, in the another podcast, The Rest is History, uh, about these, and they were really worth listening to. Arnold's reforms redefined standards of masculinity and achievement and gave us the muscular, stiff upper lip, battles one on the playing fields of Eton model we recognise from works <laughs> such as Tom Brown's School Days, Billy Bunter, Mallory Towers by Ina Blight and Jennings, and right down to the Harry Potter stories, which are basically in a final tradition of boarding school stories. Arnold set the mould not only for public schools and grammar schools, in which ate the public schools. I went to one and we had a house system and prefects. Um, I wasn't one, in the UK, but it also set the model for elite schools all over the world and, and some less elite schools as well. So the son, Matthew Arnold, uh, didn't stand a chance, also made significant contributions firstly as a schools inspector, travelling the length and breadth of the country as one of the first railway generation, something no other intellectual of his class had been able to do previously, an experience that no doubt fed into his importance as a cultural critic. 
culture was his thing, and his seminal work, Culture and Anarchy, sets it at the centre of his vision, in which he saw both individuals, um, in terms of schooling, and the country as a whole, striving towards human perfection. That sounds very kind of um, like Hegel. Yeah. Uh, by studying the great minds and texts of the past. Studying the great minds, of course, is just what we're doing here, Donald. Uh, it's worth mentioning that Matthew Arnold was also a famous poet. At the start of episode 15, we featured his much-quoted poem, Dover Beach, to show the mood of late Victorian pessimism that afflicted people like Arnold, faced with a coastline full of fossils that spoke of a godless, Bible-contradicting universe ushered in by Darwin. Um, it, it's a bit of a cliche to to cite that, but I think in this context, it's really significant uh, when we come to talk about Steiner and his mysticism. So hold that thought. So, Donald, having given our listeners a flavour of what the mainstream in education looked like, can you now give us the alternative? Introduce us, please, to the merry band of iconoclasts you have assembled, the rebels who wanted to kick over the traces and give us a new vision for schools. Yeah, as, as you were speaking there, John, I, I was trying to think of your, an analogy for what we're about to do in this podcast. And uh, it's a bit like looking at people with brain damage to try and establish how the brain actually works. You know, some of these oddball offshoots uh, from the mainstream system. And in many ways, what you summed up there was the bizarre off, uh, offshoot in, of course, the, the UK system, which is the private school system, rather bizarrely called the public school system a rather uh, interesting reversal of meaning. But of course, what has happened is you still get this relentless push from those schools into general state schooling, even though it's only 7% of, of, uh, of the schooling system. Uh, I didn't actually have to suffer the, <laughs> the ridiculous idea of being in a house or, or whatever. Uh, or, uh, nevertheless, it, it has massively influenced the British system. Interestingly, you, I think you made an interesting point there about how it even it dominates children's literature. I actually was completely bamboozled by things like the uh, famous five, and can't remember what half of them were now, you know. Didn't read them, didn't like them, because it was just like another planet to me. I didn't grow up in that environment. It seemed like very odd. We all had a little dog and went on jolly adventures. And I still actually don't like Harry Potter. I just think it's part of the same genre. I find it hideous, you know? It's a crappy public school, magic, jokey stuff. So on that controversial note, <laughs> what, what I would like to say, though, is that it's about schooling and schools here. And, what you know, we went back to the German idealists and the Prussian model, and Rudolf Steiner was a great fan of, of people like Schelling and Fichte and so on, Hegel. So that's the origins of that. But, of course, schooling goes back to really Mesopotamia, you, as soon as, and what's interesting about the origins of schooling is how intimate it is with the invention of writing. So you get writing is invented for the first time in, Meso, uh, uh, in Mesopotamia and Egypt, and both go full time into schooling for the elite, for what they called scribes. So the Sumerians were first. This is about 3,200 BC. Writing suddenly appears. And we also get the teaching of scribes. So you find these cuneiform tablets baked in fires preserved for us that are actually like school books, people practicing the writing, teachers correcting the mistakes of pupils. And the same is true in e ancient Egypt. I'll be there just uh, at the beginning of December this year. I've been to Egypt many, many times. And the culture of writing there, you, you, can't, you can't go 10 yards in Egypt without seeing hieroglyphics on stone somewhere. And of course, it becomes captured. Writing is something given by God. The act of writing becomes a fossilization of a 
of an idea. It preserves you into the afterlife and so on. So writing is at the heart of schooling. And the same is true of ancient China with the Confucian uh, things, the teaching of the five classics there. So I think that's important. Uh, you can follow through with that into ancient Greece, of course, we have the alphabet, a beautifully concise and workable cursive alphabet, which uh, allows the Greeks to go into writing big time, that whole philosophical tradition, but they have their gymnasiums and academies. But they also have this oral tradition, the sort of Socratic sophists who wander around and teach people. Well, the truth of the matter is in terms of schooling, it's the mothers who taught their kids at home. Uh, people forget this, that for most of our, uh, uh, what we call history, people were taught at home or in the context of their job or as apprentices and so on. Rome, of course, copied the Greeks, taught reading, reading, writing, and arithmetic, very writing-based. And even the madrasas and to Baghdad, place like the Holy House of Wisdom in Baghdad, massively focused on writing and calligraphy, the book, recitation of the Quran itself. And we have the, all that monastic stuff, you know, Bologna, the university system, I suppose. But the big one, in terms of the origin of schooling, of course, is the Reformation. Because suddenly you have in Scotland, where I come from, you had almost universal literacy on the back of the Reformation. Every little parish had a school. Writing was taught, but it was taught so that you could read the Bible and scripture and, and other holy texts. So religion has always been, you know, we've covered this in previous podcasts, a sort of wellspring for schooling as well. And then the Reformation brings printing and the first textbooks, of course, Comenius and others. And then and then another big one that people often forget is just the industrialization of this. So industrialization leads to the requirement of a, for an educated workforce, of course, and that leads to compulsory education laws in almost universally in Western countries. But that's a direct result of the Industrial Revolution. And in a sense, we're sort of stuck in that mode, I feel. And what's interesting about this group that we're looking at, John, is that these are attempts of people to prick the bubble and jump outside that model. <laughs> because it does seem odd. I mean, every, anyone who sends their kids to school goes through that. You know, you send them off at five. It's all very, it's all very fraught. <laughs> you know, teachers seem to have an unhappy time. They're always sort of a bit, you know, discontented a bit with their lot. Uh, the, the pupils themselves find it a bit of a labour, especially examination systems. Parents are bamboozled and find it, you know, all too much at times. Politicians are constantly fiddling with it to try and get the system to work. Uh, so it's all it's all very fraught. But what we've got are some interesting people here on Steiner, Montessori, and then I've, I've, I've put in some interesting people, I think, who are not Northern Hemisphere, and I think that's important because mm -hmm. we often think that schooling is wholly and utterly based on our model, when, it, of course, for most of the people in the world, and going to Africa a lot, it tends not to be for poor people. <laughs> it, it tends to be a very different kettle of fish so we'll tackle a couple of those from south america as well okay and we're going to start with rudolf steiner yeah yes well, and, and then he, he truly is one of the oddballs i mean but uh yeah yeah give me your thoughts on rudolf uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, let's get going yeah Rudolf Steiner, 1861 to 1925, was born in a rural village in Hungary, in what's today Croatia. Of course, all those places have moved around in terms of nationality. Um, so he was originally born under the Austro-Hungarian Empire, like a lot of people we've mentioned here. His parents were domestic servants. Um, his uh, father was a, 
uh, a, a gamekeeper, I think, who married against the will of their boss, uh, Count Hoyos, um, who is an aristo. Uh, so they had to run away. Rudolf's father became a telegraph operator on the railway, then a station master, upwardly mobile, and mobile in lots of senses. The family moved around a lot. Briefly homeschooled, uh, Rudolf eventually went to the Technische Hochschule in Vienna, uh, which sounds to me a bit like a polytechnic, um, where he yeah. studied mathematics, chemistry, physics, and philosophy. So, you know, a, an FE establishment by the sound of it. I may be wrong there. His life then took a quite amazing turn when he bagged the job of natural science editor on a new edition of Goethe's work. It's a very prestigious sort of post in publishing, but perhaps not so surprising if you consider that before he even got to the uh, to the Polytechnic, as I'll call it, he'd already studied Kant, Fichte and Schelling. So a very bright kid. He then took a job after that at the Goethe archives in Weimar and wrote two books on Goethe. Goethe is very important in his thought before getting his PhD from the University of Rostock. So far, so standard, perhaps, for one of our great minds. But Steiner is a wild card. And the thing that makes him a wild card is esoteric supernatural beliefs and practices. He was an occultist. I mean, this is something I was quite interested when I, in, in when I was young. Um, so when I went to a, a, a a, a writer's retreat a while ago. I'd been there a couple of days and someone said, oh, of course, you know, this was the Steiner Center at one point. Uh, and I said, yeah, I know. I, I can sit, tell you by the shape of the door frames, by the <laughs> uh, by what's in the library. Uh, and the library was just full of kind of Uspensky and Gurdjieff and, and, and all these people and, you know, theosophy and so on. Um, so this led him, this, this uh, interest in the occult, to develop anthroposophy, a spiritual philosophy that bridges the material and metaphysical worlds and infuses all his thought. And I mean, that's all of it. Steiner made significant contributions to fields as diverse as architecture, um, leading to the organic movement in architecture. And that's why I say I could tell by the, the, the shape of the doors that it was a Steiner place. Uh, he has a similar effect on the typology. You know, he's got ideas about everything and it influences everything in the Steiner well, I'm going to call it a brand. I had ideas about agriculture, biodynamic farming. I spent a holiday on a biodynamic farm. Okay. Um, and, and and people were telling me, well, basically it's all woo. It's um it, it it's astrological. You have to plant according to the to to the zodiac and the phases of the moon and so on. Nevertheless, was important in the development of organic um agriculture. Medicine, anthroposophical medicine, um People complain to this day that uh, uh, Steiner parents tend to be anti-vaxxers. Uh, thank you, Rudolf. However, it's in the realm of education where Steiner's legacy is most widely recognized. He founded the Waldorf education system based on his holistic development model that emphasizes intellectual, artistic and practical engagement, resonating with the child's evolving needs. This approach started with the first Waldorf school in Stuttgart in 1919 and has since blossomed into a worldwide movement with over a thousand schools. Steiner's multifaceted contributions challenge conventional boundaries, urging an integrative view of science, art, spirit, spirituality and practical wisdom. Donald, I'm coming at this, as you can tell already, um, from a very anecdotal and personal angle, I'm afraid. I've known a number of people who are the products of Steiner education. There's loads of it in Sussex where we live. There's there's a, a Steiner school in Brighton, 
uh, one in East Grinstead that a, a, a girlfriend of mine attended, um, and her mother was a teacher at the school. Uh, and they were very prevalent in my friendship group in the 70s and 80s and later in the extended family. Over the years, I've heard all of those kids complaining about having to do you with me, how embarrassing it was, <laughs> giggling about the copper rods, which in ways I can't understand was an important part of you with me. And some of the stories I heard about Steiner education, I have to say, I found frankly astonishing. So this is a great chance for me to understand better from the front end, if you like, what it's all about. So fill us in, please. Yeah, it's interesting hearing that. I, I've known I've known no one who went to a, a Steiner school, and my route into Steiner was completely different because I was doing postgraduate work in German philosophy and so on. And I I, I have his book. In fact, I still have his book. Uh, this is uh, uh, on Friedrich Nietzsche. So yeah. I, I really came to Steiner, and and at the time I thought the book is terrible. By the way, he's uh, he's Nietzsche's a psychopathological case. It's really a case study. It's not about Nietzsche at all or his ideas. But but I mean, it really is. Uh, you know. I mean, you you can't really underestimate what a wacko he really is. I mean, here's this sort of platonic idea of the soul that gets resurrected, but then it tips into racism a bit because he thinks there are five, uh, sorry, seven races, with our current race being the fifth out of seven historically. But he very thought, very much thought that the African race, for example, was very different from everybody else and so on. So there was a bit of sort of German racism in there as well. But all that astral body belief stuff, you know, that we have a, an astral body and then another separate etheric body and then an eye and an ego and so on, That all, a lot of that comes out of the sort of psychoanalytic movement as well, a lot of, sort of baloney in that one. But his science was terrible. He believed the heart was actually an emotional organ, that it somehow, uh, you know, it was actually a sense organ for perceiving the, the outside world. And then he had these weird views about Atlantis and Lemuria, you know, these these old uh, civilizations, you see this all the time. I've got Egypt, as, as I said, in uh, December. And the internet is full of this stuff about how basically astronauts built all these monuments and the Egyptians just came along and wrote upon them, which is yeah. complete baloney, of course. Not uh, stuff. Yeah, Yeah. so you get all that anti-vax, anti-science type stuff. And you were right about the building. The, the only thing I know about the building was that the... The famous center in Switzerland, I cannot remember where it is, but it was the, the Gothenium, which is a very famous thing in the building, which he designed, because yeah. he saw himself as an architect, made entirely out of wood without using any nails, burnt to the ground in 1920, something or another. <laughs> so we never we, we made it in concrete. Yeah. But another interesting thing, just to round off on the weirdness, was the people often say, oh, yeah, Eurythmics, thinking it's like the Annie Lennox, uh, Dave Stewart thing. But of course, they. The eurythmics that they use has nothing to do with Steiner. It was actually a, a method for teaching music. She was quite surprised when she heard that it was related to Steiner. In fact, it was actually completely, it was something completely separate, although related to dance and music as well. But I do feel sorry for many of the kids that I had to go through, obviously. But so, so there was all that baloney. But let's put the baloney to one side and see if there's anything in this, because the anthroposophy stuff is a bit weird, also, uh, you know, a bit esoteric as well. But to be honest, I think he's following on a he's following in a tradition here, which is not German. That's uh, that's a Rousseauing uh, a tradition. Mm. It's very it's like a systematic version of Rousseau, because it or, or even and and with a bit of Piaget uh, thrown in, because he did think there were these distinct stages of cognitive development, like Piaget and many others since. Uh, this. Uh, 
and Vygotsky thought this was true as well, that came through, through language. It turns out it's much more complicated than any of those people thought, and much more fluid. But he had the view that up to seven, don't bother with school at all. There is something in this, to be honest, because you may as well not start teaching them mathematics at age four and five, because they'll pick it up just as easily, and in fact, much easier when they're seven and mentally capable of doing so. In fact, the danger is you turn them off. So. There wasn't schooling for Steiner didn't really start to seven, and that's been widely adopted in, on the continent in Scandinavia, but obviously not in the Anglo-Saxon world or America mm. and the UK. Then there was these two stages, seven to 14, and then you're sort of 14 to 21. And now he based them on these really weird astral, ethereal things, which is complete nonsense. But there was something in this. There was something in this. Uh, but he also thought it was linked to this notion that everybody has a soul. And that soul had this weird memory in it. But then he, 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 he's, like, he's like one of these recipes. He just plucks things out of history and throws them into the mix. Because he also used the medieval four-way distinction, that chlorette, uh, sanguine, melancholic, phlegmatic yeah, thing. He throws yeah, that into the mix. Yeah. So whenever Fine you read the stuff, it's an absolute shambles, as it were. But beneath it, there's something quite interesting here. And, of course, it's... It's one of those systems that a lot of progressive people who don't want their kids to go through main school, uh, uh, mainstream schooling would like to choose because they see it as being a more relaxed and more open. It turns out not to be that, actually. Whilst it's a sort of non-selective, uh, you know, boys and girls together, it's certainly not single sex. The teachers teachers are really given masses of headroom to do what they want. Uh, there's still... It, it's an alternative to what we all recognize as the ridiculously oppressive nature of schooling in the state and public school systems. And so therefore, I fully understand why people choose this. Mm. Uh, but I think when you dig into the system itself, then the sort of weird racism, the oddball, slightly anti-science, not if not anti-science, alternative science stuff mm. actually clashes massively with what most people would want for their kids, which is a do dose of realism and rationalism at school so that they don't uh, fly off at, at odd angles. It almost has a sort of, it's almost like a religious school with a made up religion. Mm. But is there anything that's worth salvaging in it? I'm not too sure there is. And we started with, started with Steiner, but I think he's probably the one that went as, as, as is more off the wall than others who were, I think, more rational in their approach in terms of methodology and educational goals. Hmm. But uh, I don't know, yeah. what was your experience, John, the people who went there? Do you think, how did it influence them? What do you feel about their, the after effects of it all? But it's really interesting. So I've, I've thought a lot about it. And um, obviously, a lot of my life has been spent in the creative industries. And you, you, do tend to find a lot of kind of ex Steiner alumni there. They 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 function very well in those contexts because there is yeah. so much emphasis on creativity in the um, in the Steiner education. But how much of that is actually selection? Obviously, it's kind of <coughs> private school schooling. Yeah. Um, it's very middle class. Um, you know, yeah. it's centered around places like East Grinstead, which you yeah. know, it, slightly culty. Uh, the, the 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 kids I knew, their their parents had been alternative in an earlier generation, yeah. uh, and and of course, you know, the, the the kids would, you know, this was the punk era. The kids would complain about how there was such a big hippie thing involved in it, 
And actually, the hippies really took to all that kind of alternative medicine, distrust of science, you know, what are you rebe yeah. rebelling against? What do you got? Um, and a lot of Steiner stuff really chimed, chimed with that. And it, to, to go back a bit further and his roots in the sort of end of the 19th century um, mysticism, occultism, you know, Annie Besant, theosophy, Alistair Crowley, yeah. uh, who has a house near us in Plumpton that was bought by Jimmy Page of Led Zeppelin. Yeah. You know, those two eras, there's there's a big kind of uh, confluence of, of interests and beliefs, really. Um, so Steiner was ideally placed, Steiner schools were ideally placed in the 60s for people like Peter Cook, for instance, the um, the, the English satirist um, who set up Private Eye. Uh, he sent his kids there. You know, you would come across the, a lot of the kids had famous parents. I mean, obviously, this was going to help them in life anyway. But, yeah. Um, you did see a lot in the creative industries. You saw a lot of kind of ex-Steiner people. One thing I felt at the time, and uh, this might be a, in the context of today, might sound a bit wrong, but I felt that it was very good for for women, uh, but the boys seemed a bit lost. Yeah. Um, the, the the women who'd come out come through Steiner education just seemed to have a kind of wider sense of possibilities and you know oh, i can do this you know mm. because they had not been stopped you know in in the course of their education they hadn't been kind of sent off to go and sew and do stuff like that mm -hmm. um the boys felt a bit adrift because they didn't have that you know harsh upbringing as was in the state system ad of you know the the, the peer group hierarchy you know in, intense kind of bullying which is so yeah. much part of the culture of schools actually yeah, yeah. um and and they just didn't. A lot of them, to me, just didn't seem to know how to function and fit into the world. Mm. Whereas the, the the women seemed to to have a better time of it, and you know, were, were very kind of strong, self directed, all the rest of it. But that's a very subjective uh, opinion. Just one more thing I, I thought I'd say about it: when you look at the thirties and twenties and thirties, when when he was writing his stuff. He doesn't align with any of the major currents of thought, really. Although, as you say, he, he's got this kind of background of the German idealists. Um, if you really look at his stuff, it's, it's, it's not a Marxist, it's not a fascist, and these were the major bits of thought. In that age, really, his thought is ortho orthogonal, I think is yeah. the word, yeah, yeah. to everything else that's going on, which is, I think, what, what in a way, odd way preserved it and made it so popular in the 60s when it became part of the alternative counterculture, if yeah. you like. And one last note on, on, the, um, on, on the racism. Uh, when you look at that, it's interesting. It comes out of his, uh, his theories of reincarnation. That's right, yeah. He felt that as we were moving through this, you know, development, which sounds like very eugenic uh, among the races that were hierarchized, it was the fact that in, with, with reincarnation, they were gradually progressing towards being more white you know it, it, it's yeah. loathsome but like everything else in his philosophy it's eccentric and yet oddly systematic you know yeah. sign had an answer for everything sign is always yeah. right it's a total explanation system like marx yeah but it is as you say at, at, at its root a bit woo yeah it's it's a, it's a good description that orthogonal because it was a, it was a reaction to the idea, German idealism we discussed in another podcast in some detail. It was a reaction to that, but still very German. <laughs> yeah. In that, you know, he felt he had to 
come up with his own form of idealism, which is really a sort of platonic idea of resurrection in the soul, quasi-religious ideas, essentially. Uh, and uh, very much an individual thinker, but that's his problem. You know, his problem is nothing universalizes. He doesn't have uh, enough to, uh, to form a really reasonable theory of education. He's not that interested in how people learn in that sense. He's very much about imposing his, uh, his rather bizarre ideas on other people. And I, of course, that's very German, but the next person we're going to, uh, that distinction between men and women is very interesting. You know, women may have been able to thrive better, but they had more autonomy and earlier maturity than boys in schooling, which we find in, in our current schooling system. But then we've got our second person here, who is one of the few women who really are superbly well known and massively influential in the area of. Uh, of learning theory, and that's uh, a Montessori, and uh, she's she. In many ways, there are similarities, but vast differences as well. So let's move on to her. Maria Montessori, eighteen seventy to nineteen fifty-two, was born in um, a place which I'm now going to struggle to pronounce. I'm afraid, Chiaravalle, Italy. <laughs> to a military officer and a relative of the Italian geologist and paleontologist Antonio Stepani. So, um, you know, that, that's her background. It's very academic in a way. Her educational journey was marked by a relentless pursuit of knowledge, leading her to the University of Rome's medical program, where she broke gender barriers to become one of the first female physicians in Italy. Um, she also faced a lot of really regrettable prejudice and blatant sexism along the way through her career. And it's quite sad reading about all that. Her foray into educational theory came through her work with children with intellectual disabilities. Mm. Uh, Montessori's observations and studies laid the groundwork for what would become the Montessori method, a child-centered educational approach that emphasizes self-directed activity, hands-on learning, and collaborative play. The first, I mean, that can sound a bit like Waldorf, schools but actually yeah. it's much more hard-headed in Montessori and right. um, less of the woo. The first Casa dei Bambini or children's house was opened in Rome in 1907 providing an environment where children could explore their interests and develop their potential at their own pace. Uh, Personalised learning as we'd say now. Montessori's innovative method revolutionised early childhood education highlighting the importance of fostering independence, observation and the love of learning. Today, her legacy lives on with over 20,000 Montessori schools operating worldwide. So a lot more than the Steiner establishments. Um, my son actually worked in one for a, a brief period, but that's my only autobiographical anecdote here. Donald, can you unpack her contributions for us and the lasting impact of her progressive ideas on alternative education? Yeah, that's right. I think you summarised that very, very well there. It's much more structured than the the, the Steiner thing, but with, as you said, less of the woo. But still, there's a, like Steiner in a sense, there was this focus on the social and emotional development of the child as opposed to just the rational and intellectual side. That was terribly important for, for her. It has this global reach, you know, hugely successful. Even 20,000 schools sounds like a lot, but in the big picture of things, probably, uh, it's, you know, not a, not a big deal in, in a sense. So there was the emotional well-being side of things, which is important and important now, and rightly so, I think. There's also the big thing for me was this independent self-directed learning, the, the idea that the this is what you have to foster in children. You have to foster that sense of independence. 
And interestingly, I have a Montessori school just around the corner from me and got to know the people through that and the methods I've been in the school and so on. And I often see the Montessori kids being taken out in the morning. They, they're much more freewheeling about getting the kids out of the school as opposed to locking them up in rooms all day. But a thing that really struck me as interesting because I've been involved in technology all my adult life was this, you know, the, uh, the some really well-known people who went there, including uh, Larry Page and Sergey Braden mm. uh, of Google, who both actually attribute their drive and self-directed uh, attitude to life to their Montessori education very directly. They often say this. Also, Amazon's uh, Jeff Bezos. Now, I also mistakenly put down Jimmy Wales because I, 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 I read that somewhere. And amazingly, Jimmy Wales got back to me on Twitter saying, no, I didn't go to a Montessori school. He did go to a little schoolhouse. It was almost like Montessori, but, you know, it was like only a couple of pupils and so on. But uh, nevertheless, I think there are some very, very famous people who have emerged from this system. But your question was, uh, you know, what is it really? What, you know, uh, you, you went through the Casa del Bambini stuff and the mm. early development of this. But I think what she's perhaps most known for is the Montessori method. Okay. Now, here, she absolutely is in the, not in the German idealist tradition, but in the Russo tradition. Okay. She did have this view, like Neil, who we're going to be discussing as well, that you have to let children develop naturally. Uh, and that means giving them agency, personal independence. And this, that, that's just like A.S. Neal, who will come to in a, mi a minute, she thought that actually children were thwarted by the constraints of contemporary educational systems, the sitting them down, the bells, the moving them from one class to another, the strict and almost unconnected curriculum, the, the lack of relevance the kids see of what they're learning. Uh, and and she thought that that was in direct, you know, that that conflicted, that conflicted with the child the child's natural uh, tendency. We use the word tendency in Italian to behave or learn. So that that notion of giving the children agency lies at the whole root of the method, and that's why. But but to be fair to to Montessori, well, she didn't leave it at that. She actually then built schools, built classrooms, and built all these tools that will allow children to, to to learn with this sense of agency. So the classrooms are really, I don't know if you've ever been in a Montessori classroom, they're so different from other classrooms, you know. There's no assigned seats, you can sit anywhere. There's lots of these really weird low tables and mats, you know. The whole thing is designed for the children, as it were. Uh, and then you have this, it's all sort of mapped out in terms of areas where they, have, they do different subjects. Uh, uh, you know, it's a quite highly methodological. Uh, Sort of highly organized in a phase. You think it's disorganized, but actually it's massively organized. Often natural materials would, uh, you know, no, uh, they're less than artificial type stuff, very low shelves for books and stuff. And all the kids beautifully tidy away everything after they've used them. I actually really admire that. It's right. an environment that like a good parent would have for their kids at home, you know? Yeah. And, but so that that I really liked in terms of the methodology. Then there's the teaching, which is different. And there is structure. It's not completely, you know, like lazy fair to the degree that people just do what they want. But it's it's very individualized, adaptive to the to the individual kids. They get to know the kids really well. And also the small group thing, not the whole class. They hardly do anything. I don't think you do any whole class teaching. And then there's no testing, no exams. You know, it's all through observation, which I think is right. Once you get to know your learners, you know what their competencies are and where they are on that road. 
of learning or acquiring skills or whatever. So it's much more organized than you might think from the teacher's point of view. Okay. And but writing, I go back to this point time and time again, writing is really lies at the they, they teach children to write before they read. It's really interesting. Before you know, they, they don't do what normal primary school school try and shove books down kids' throats. You must read this. Uh, you must read to your child before they go to sleep, sleep every night, sort of thing. Uh, they're very, very big on uh, teaching writing. And before many state schools adopted this, encouraged the phonetic approach, which, which tried uh, phonics. So it tried, it proved to be, they, she proved to be right on that, as opposed to the whole word method that mm. became disastrously popular in our schooling system and still, still very common in the US. So it's, it's a home from home. I think that's how that's that's how you, it, it seemed to me when I walked into the school and had a look at the methods. Then they get the parents involved. You know, I think that's a nice thing as well. That was also true of the Rudolf Steiner things. They don't see the, mm. the parents as the enemies. In other words, I take your child, I lock the gate, I deliver them back at half past four, and don't dare come in and speak to me because I'm responsible for their education, not you. I, I think there is a quite a nice thing in Montessori, and that is still the retention of. Uh, you know, domestic skills, learning cook, and you know, be, be at ease with other people, and so on. So very much like Rousseau, Dewey, and others, uh, practical vocational skills they're keen on as well. As am I. I think it's, I think the schooling system has got bizarrely academic, focusing wholly and utterly on reading and writing in one form or another, whatever subject it is. I am actually glad I went to a school that where I did metalwork, woodwork, technical drawing. I made stuff. They're still one of some of my most vivid memories uh, of school and learning, uh, and found them valuable all my life. But uh, I think we stripped all that out of the schooling system, and thankfully Montessori didn't. Hmm. One thing that leaps out to me, actually, is is the the the, the fact that she started in uh, remedial yeah. learning, and that you know she she was working with people with learning difficulties intellectually challenged whatever the, the 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 right phraseology is for that and then it seems to move on to a general theory of education we, we kind of blurred over that in the yeah, introduction but do, do you know more about how that that ha happens how it makes the transition for being you know this is how you do a, a special school for for people who you know have have challenges yeah. to well, this is the favored education method of the middle classes wooden toys and all that it's a good point that John, because I think many people send their kids to Steiner, especially Montessori schools, because they, their kids, they, they either anticipate or find that their kids struggle in mainstream schooling because of the, whatever, bullying or it's a, the pressured environment, the overemphasis on testing, the lack of, you know, arts uh, or whatever. But I think for Montessori, go back to her for a moment, she was, I mean, she was very intellectual about this. So that notion that you had to, the reason she was very keen on personal agency and understanding the emotional and well-being side of a child was that, actually, it's true. You know, if you don't understand that, you will completely misread some of the behavioral issues or failure to learn issues amongst children. And we found this in modern schools because uh, kids with obviously the obvious signs of sometimes invisible signs like dyslexia, autism, ADHD, are being dealt with on a far, uh, a, a far better level than they were when I was at school. People with dyslexia, dyslexia basically failed 
and they popped out the other end, No, ch- didn't go to university, but very often very smart people who ended up, I remember my experience in City Guilds, going into these people who were learning hairdressing. They were all amazing business people. They started and ran sometimes hugely successful businesses, and many of them were dyslexic. And they had been denied the opportunity of going to university because universities aren't interested in people who don't write essays. They just are not. But nowadays, I think we we have come to recognize Montessori's notion that things like movement and things that are important in learning, that the autonomy of the learner is important, but more importantly, their well, you know, their their emotional makeup. And I learned that when I was a governor in a secondary school that. You know, problem children, even that adjective is problematic. Yeah. Uh, once you know the backstory, you know, it's horrific sometimes. You know, your heart bleeds, really. But people make judgments on kids very, very quickly without understanding what lies mm. behind the behavior or their failure to learn. But, and yeah. I think she, 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 tried to, she tries to give those kids meaningful context in which they can learn. Yeah. Remember there being something called junior remove. There was always the, the remove. The, the kids with disabilities or problems were hived off to this separate place. I mean, interestingly, Bunter, Billy Bunter, when we were talking earlier about um, Arnold, <laughs> he, 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 he is often called the fat owl of the remove. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is certainly not language we'd use anymore. <laughs> so I wonder with Montessori, to get back to that question of transition from you know remedial education to kind of uh, have it, having a, a system for everybody is it in a way it's a kind of it's similar to that syndrome you get with accessibility nowadays that if you design uh systems and uh, environments with uh, people with disabilities and challenges uh in mind it actually gets easier and more efficient for everybody else as well yeah, you know, we found this again, like with the design of supermarkets. If you if you look at the the, the, uh, the problems of disabled people in a supermarket checkout, mm-hmm. suddenly it becomes easier for a, 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 a an undisabled, if if you like, mother with children to negotiate that environment because you know. And similarly with Montessori, she made discoveries in that process that um, helped towards a general bettering of of how you educate people because every everybody is different. That's right. And uh, I think uh, this mass schooling or state state schooling on the whole has this regression to the mean problem. <laughs> so they deliver so one size fits all type things. And and to be honest, I think the big distortion there is that one size fits all isn't for all at all. It's mm-hmm. actually for those kids who are heading towards uni or going to uni as middle class parents call it. You know, that's what the whole system is geared towards. And I think that I've seen that happen in my lifetime because uh, I only had four people from my secondary school went to university. It wasn't such a big deal that people didn't have anybody aspired to do so, in fact. But the we now have a system that's wholly and utterly geared towards that. I think this is a huge mistake, uh, that it's gone too far. I would personally strip billions out of the higher education system and reshape uh, the educational system around something that's fairer and more productive for society as a whole. So that's one observation. The second observation is, to be fair, the state system is doing quite well here. We have you know, special educational needs uh, facilities in most schools now, and those people are very, very good and skilled and professional in dealing with uh, you know, kids who, who struggle to fit in and so on. Nevertheless, the, the idea, you know, the, the, the trouble is parents are, you know, 
none, the trouble with research, and if, if you say, well, just Montessori or the, or the Steiner schools, you know, what research is that that model is superior, let's say, to the state system. The problem is that you can't get the data because the people who go there have been selected by their parents, and that's a very self-selecting process. Yeah, so by right post code and class and yeah, exactly, John. Yeah, like yeah. And I think you nailed that at the beginning talking about Steiner. It's a certain type of parent that's more likely to send their kids to either uh, Steiner or Montessori. There's probably a difference between those two groups, in fact. Yeah. Nevertheless, I think there was a big difference in Montessori compared to Steiner, and that <clears throat> she she massively influenced Piaget and others as well. But I think her I think the success of the Montessori schooling system shows that. Uh, there is something in this. Look after the emotional side of children, deal with them as individuals, and give them personal agency, which is why you have people like Sergey Brin and so on saying, well, "Well, yeah, this made me as an adult." You know, I think there's something in that, and I think there's something in it because I think we may be moving into an era now where technology allows people to be more individualized, where the technology is delivering the personal feedback and allowing people to develop at the rate they that's right for them. You know, this notion that it takes there's a certain time to competence. Why the, the the problem is this obsession with time, you know, the one hour period, the one hour, hour lecture. We we started with the Sumerians, but as I often say, the one hour is only because the Sumerians had a base six number, number system. All these kids march off from one classroom to another. Nobody in the real world does that. Imagine a company where every hour, everybody, everybody in the whole company stood up and marched off to do something else, you know? Why don't the teachers move? It's just one person, you know? So we got stuck in this Prussian model, which I think is oppressive. I, I think schools are a breeding ground because teachers don't fully understand, I have a personal view on this, which is teachers don't fully understand peer yeah. group pressure, which is everything in a school. And that kids suffer badly from that. You know, the, there, there are many, many children, I, I feel, who find it just all too much. And uh, one of the saddest things in my life was walking across beachy head and there was a little metal cross and, uh, uh, and and you know had been placed there by parents and their 16 year old girl had thrown herself off the cliff because of her exam results huh. and uh, it was yeah it was devastating you know imagine that you know a young girl brave enough in a way but but damaged by the system so much she could throw herself off a cliff unbelievable and I think there are many, many young people suffering in relative silence because they don't go to their teachers or their parents, but they're crippled inside because they feel their failures as driving people through, you know, the hideous spectacle of these kids. Oh, you've got their 12 GCSEs and are going to Cambridge or something and that we get every year while the rest are almost mocked for as being failures. I, I, I find it distasteful, the whole thing. And, uh, Anyway, I better stop there because I'll get I'll get I'll get too political as usual. Well, you put me in a terrible position here, Donald, because now I'm going to look completely Prussian by saying we have to move <laughs> along. And also, you, yeah, we'll take a pause to re reflect on the emotions that you will have triggered in people who had bad schooling there. But nevertheless, <laughs> onwards we must go. Alexander Sutherland Neal, born in Forfar, Scotland, to a couple of school teachers, Alexander Sutherland Neal was a transformative figure in the realm of progressive education. 
his upbringing in a stern Calvinist environment. His dad was a spare the rod, spoil the child type of schoolmaster, by the sound of it, probably played a significant role in shaping his critique of traditional educational paradigms. Neil further developed his perspectives during his academic journey at the University of Edinburgh, immersing himself in educational psychology. A couple of uh, <laughs> uh, resonances with, with your own background there, Donald. It However, is, yeah. In 1921, Neil established Summerhill School in Leiston, is it? Leiston in Suffolk. Leiston, yeah. Which would soon become a beacon of progressive education. The school's radical tenets, such as optional lessons and a democratic decision-making process involving both students and staff, they've got an equal vote in that, stemmed from Neil's belief in the intrinsic goodness of children. Um, I'm going to say that again and pause the intrinsic goodness of children. Mm -hmm. Parents will now be doing a chin rub over that one. He was convinced that when free from compulsion, <laughs> children would naturally lean into learning. Neil's ideas were influenced by the radical psychiatrist Wilhelm Reich, uh, as we pointed out in the, the Ukraine episodes I did. Both shared convictions about the importance of emotional well-being and personal freedom, principles that were embedded in the fabric of Summerhill's uh, philosophy. Uh, although personally, I have to say, I would trust my children with Neil uh, a long time before I trust Wilhelm Reich with the child of mine. <laughs> yeah. However, Summerhill was not without its controversies. Critics argued that the school's liberal approach could be detrimental to academic achievement and discipline. Moreover, the school faced numerous challenges from educational authorities, questioning its unorthodox methodologies. Ofsted tried to shut the, the school down around the turn of uh, the millennium. Uh, and I think it was was it David Blunkett behind that, uh, didn't get away with it. Despite the debates surrounding Summerhill, Neil's influence remains undeniable. His magnum opus, Summerhill, a radical approach to child rearing, delves deeply into his innovative educational stance, continuing to inspire educators and thinkers worldwide. Donald, the core of Neil's approach seems to have been instilling a, a, a kind of, if I can caricature it, don't worry, be happy five yeah. among the kids he really wanted them to be happy uh, which is an incredibly novel proposition in education yeah. uh, it, it turns out and we couldn't be further here from hegel's view of education covered mm. in the last episode where i caricatured him as the demon headmaster how do you assess neil's take on learning yeah listen, listening to you that i is the sort of person i have most uh, most sympathy and empathy with i feel you because i know where he's coming from this sort of scottish calvinism it comes from a place in Forfar, which you may, you you will not know this probably, but most Scottish people do. It's famous for the Forfar Bridey, which is the Scottish equivalent of the Cornish pasty. It's a great big giant oh. uh, half moon th thing filled with mince and onions. But uh, uh, but and I actually, I curiously on the one year going to latitude, I popped into uh, Leyston. It's on the road that is in Suffolk. It's, it's, it's actually right next to where you can actually almost see the size of a nuclear reactor on the coast from the building itself. It's a beautiful sort of Victorian uh, brick building with ivy clad on one end of it and so on. And nice mosaic. You know, it's got that, oh yeah, this is a bit hippie-ish vibe to it when you go right. there. Uh, but of course, he, he was Scottish. I think that influenced him because curiously, you might think that he had a great deal of deep learning theory in him as a person, but when you read the book, actually a number of different sort of essays cobbled together, really. You don't find much learning theory, really. In fact, he famously, people always thought he was a sort of big fan of Rousseau until he admitted that he had never read Rousseau. <laughs> it was well after he opened the school. You know, He wasn't really a, that type of intellectual as a person. But what, what he was, in addition to the Calvinist background, 
he was a he had been brought up in that whole Freudian uh, uh, context where the assumption was that it's a Rousseauian view, view idea, but really he's more of a Freudian fan than, than Rousseau. He thinks that children are, are literally uses the word repressed. He, he thinks that repression comes when you apply all these constraints that normal schooling imposes upon young people, and that that repression results in resentment. So that's that, that's the sort of premise behind everything else here. He thinks the kids just become incredibly discontented and unhappy behave oddly and so on when you when you start to repress them okay mm. and what are the, the the forms of repression of course are as we just described the prussian system of a fixed timetable fixed curriculum you stand up every hour you hear bells ringing you get punished if you do wrong and a whole load of moral and religious stuff that's thrown in to keep you on the right sort of path of righteousness. He thinks this is nonsense. That's what he experienced in Scotland and didn't, uh, under that Calvinist notion of uh, mass schooling, and he did not like it, and I have some sympathy with him on that front. Uh, so this the modern concept of well-being, he used that word, in fact, you know, are like he, both he and Montessori believed strongly in that you let the child develop as opposed to impose adult rules upon the child. And again and again and again, you hear, just like Montessori, emotion. The emotional needs of the child are important. We cannot rely on a purely rational educational system that focuses on all, you know, this all, he all head, no heart. Mm. Actually, every teacher who's ever tried to teach a bunch of kids knows that this is true. But the state system, or certainly the, and the public private school system, they find that difficult. You've got 30 kids in a the room, they've got an exam to pass. You tend to start. Uh, behaving rather oddly, as do they. But he did have this Rousseauian idea of innate goodness, you know, that notion of, uh, although he didn't, he didn't base this on any deep theory in any sense, he just felt that that was instinctively true. And he hated punishment in schools, as I do as well. You know, I remember well in my Calvin's upbringing, and I was a very bookish kid, you know, a bit, very subservient in a way. Uh, even I was thrashed to an inch of my life with a leather strap from some little psychopaths who were teachers in the schools I went to. So uh, I think he reacted badly against that sort of stuff. <laughs> but I, I think on punishment, really interesting, I, I like about Neil, and that's why uh, Wollstonecraft's book on education I really loved. And you know, it's another woman like Montessori who wrote in a deep sense about education he instituted Wollstonecraft's idea of peer punishment. In other words, if somebody was, you know, doing things that were really unacceptable to the group, the group determined the punishment, which is never physical. You know, never hit anybody or caned or strapped them or anything. Uh, but you know, there would be there, there were. It was almost it was really a democracy. So they had these they have these week, weekly meetings in the school. It's really interesting when you go to the school. It's really that that shines through this notion that it's a democratic environment. And that he only had one vote, teachers have one vote, and so on. But the democratic uh, decisions are made by the children themselves, and that they have a voice. That was quite important. Uh, we used to call it student voice. A headmaster I worked with was quite big on this, and I learned how important that was. I, I was a bit skeptical at the beginning. Well, they're just kids. Why should we give them a voice? But until I sat down with eight kids from the school, I was in, and they said, "Well, you do realise that the substitute teachers uh, come in and just show us Toy Story." And you know, we don't get any learning at all. I'm like, really? Every one of them nodded, yeah, that happens all the time. And in fact, they were they, the reason they brought it up is they were annoyed that they never saw the end of the movie because it was less than the period length. Oh, uh, yeah. 
uh, that the the and then they say, well, we, we we can't get you know in summer it's really roasting. There's no water in the playground. That's weird because there was a there was a little well in the school I went to back in the day. So we put put you know one of those little spout things into the playground. It was an incredibly valuable experience speaking to the kids about what was wrong. Cause the great fuss amongst the teachers, of course, because when you make an acquisition like uh, an accusation like, do you know the substitute teachers come in and slam a DVD on and let the kids watch Toy Story? They, they deny it at first, but of course the kids know it happens and, and so on and so forth. So there's something in student voice. Uh, and I, I think the nice thing about Somerville is it had this massive sort of, you know, it actually didn't, it, it came out of Germany originally. Everything comes out of Germany here, doesn't it? But mm. I think the trouble is they're unsustainable financially and also find it difficult to fit, as you say, Ofsted tried to close them down. No, they're a round peg in a square hole in terms of the state system, so tend to suffer from the state regulation around education, quality control, Ofsted, and so on. I think that's a real shame. Uh, but they've survived, and uh, the numbers have dropped, but you still have, I, I don't know how I many it'll be, it's about 10 teachers or so, you know, that's a size, a couple hundred kids and so on. But you still have loyalists who send their kids there. The book... The book was interesting because Summerhill, when I was younger, the book was very, very famous. You know, it was in all the bookshops. Because hardly anybody sent their kids to Summerhill or a Summerhill type school. But most progressive, progressive parents felt that they quite liked Summerhill or had bought the book or had some, some sympathies towards the book. But in truth, it never really took off. Hmm. Progressive schooling hasn't taken off. And that, although, interestingly, I think post COVID, Maybe leave this to end, but I think the rise of homeschooling, the massive number of kids who have not gone back to school, there's some interesting, but let's leave that towards the end, I think, John. Yeah. But it's interesting that, that a while ago there was a free schools movement that came yeah. from the Tory government. Um, my uh, perhaps rather prejudiced uh, partisan view on that was just an excuse to try and get you know the public sector in there and get people to make more money out of education that they can hive off <laughs> to uh, tax. Um, tax resorts in in the Bermudas or whatever. But um, it, interestingly, there was a Rudolf Steiner school that managed to get state funded yeah. during, as, as a result of that. And, and there were all sorts of other experiments as well. Did, it, it, is this a thing in education where you get eventually, occasionally from time to time, get a recrudescence of an interest in, well, maybe there's another yeah. model that might work better? Well, the, the interesting thing about free schools, it was actually really started by Tony Blair. And uh, it's often thought to be a sort of Tory thing. But what, what happened is Tory, Tony, Tony Blair, Blair is a Tory. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, what's interesting, and, we, and you know, I, I think Tony, I think that government did a lot of good things at one of the ten. Yeah, yeah. But I think he was terrible in education because his personal religious, it was all about him allowing religious schools to flourish because, as we know, he then converted to Catholicism and so on. Mm religious convictions but what happened was he created the uh, the free school movement really and boy did the tories run with it before what they did was create mats so you could have these big corporate type entities running many many schools there was some there's some rationale in that actually because it may save you money and procurement and so on in actual fact what it led to was these sort of very very wealthy ceos sitting above the mats but that's a huge political thing but it's very complicated but Still, despite all that superstructure, you know, people fiddle around with the structures of schooling all the time. Actually, what happens in a classroom day by day tends to remain much the same. Uh, so that's just a superstructure 
uh, you know, differences really. And that was an attempt to get rid of the control of local authorities by the, the Conservative government really in creating maps, but that's complicated in itself. Quite, you know, coming back to the the direction of travel here, you think I, I'm quite pleased that these oddball schools, you call them that. Again, I'm I'm guilty of using the wrong adjectives here. But these schools like Steiner schools and Montessori schools are still around. Uh, I think it's more insidious that you have uh, the rise of religious schooling. And so we have many purely Islamic, purely Jewish, purely Church of England schools. I'm not too sure this is healthy. Witness what's happening on our television screens right now in the Middle East and even the reaction to that in our own individual countries. So, you know, probably I'm for another podcast. Either. Sorry, John. Probably for another podcast. Other it than, is indeed, yes. Other yeah. than us. yes. Just before we go, some notable former pupils from Summerhill um, include Re Rebecca de Mornay, very good actress in Hollywood, Gus Dudgeon, who produced a lot of Elton John's records. Again, you see, it's the creative industries that come out of this type of education a lot of the time. And John Burningham, who isn't a, a massive name, child's author and illustrator, but uh, he created my favourite ever, ever book to read to children. Uh, Mr. Gumpy's outing, <laughs> just lurching towards the other autobiographical. So let's move on. Vicky Colbert, uh, 1948 to nine. Uh, I, I think that means we're not sure. Maybe she isn't sure whether she was born in 1948 or nine. I'm sure there's a story there. Don't know it. Uh, and still among us. Vicky Colbert is a renowned Colombian educator and social entrepreneur, best recognized for her pioneering efforts in reshaping rural education in Latin America. Born in the late 1940s, Colbert's passion for education was evident from the start. Her dedication led her to pursue her studies in sociology and anthropology at Stanford University. Now, she was born in Colombia, but uh, went to Stanford University and American universities in general, enhancing her understanding of societal structures and their impact on education. In collaboration with Oscar Mogollon, I think I'm pronouncing that right, and probably wrong, and Roberto Bernal, um, Colbert co-developed the innovative Escuela Nueva New School model in the 1970s. This groundbreaking model shifted the traditional teacher-centered paradigm to a student-centered one, emphasizing cooperative learning, flexibility, and active participation. Um, you know, some things in common for a, a lot of these models, particularly tailored for multi-grade schools in rural areas. Escuela Nueva transformed the way rural education was perceived and implemented. Colbert's remarkable vision earned her numerous accolades, including the prestigious Yidan Prize and the Skoll Award for Social Entrepreneurship. Throughout her career, she held pivotal positions, such as serving as Colombia's Vice Minister of Education, that enabled her to advocate and spread her approach. More than just an educator, Vicky Colbert stands as a beacon for innovative educational change. I'm afraid these intros are getting a bit flowery, and I blame ChatGPT for that. It seems to be much more flowery than me. Her relentless commitment to bettering the educational landscape. You see an example there? I would have struck a few of those adjectives out. Uh, to bettering the educational landscape, especially for marginalised communities, continues to inspire educators and policymakers across the globe. Donald, we covered Freire's work in South America last time when we were talking about Marxists. Is there a resonance here with Colbert's work, or is that just because it's South America and I'm too broad-brushing my thinking? 
Yeah, I'm very, yeah. Well, the Esquilla Nueva is a model for schools, as it were, and quite separately from like your Paul Freire's theories that they have a sort of unique characters. But they do share common ideals about education. You're right in that observation. That's definitely true. And of course, they're in the same part of the world that Spare worked extensively in, in South America. So everybody knows his theories, his critical pedagogy type approach to life. But I think the common commonality, it's not as if this is a this is a, a manifestation of Freire, you know, these schools. It's very okay. much Ricky Colbert's ideas in themselves. But uh, student engagement is a big thing, active participate. The shift away from that mass schooling, teacher top-down banking of knowledge stuff. Uh, Vicky Colbert definitely believes in that. And more importantly, just like Freire, it's contextualized. You know, she she's living in countries where most of the population live in the countryside and small subsistence farming. So this urban model of schooling that comes out of central, you know, out of Prussia and Europe and America seems singularly inappropriate. I actually met, interestingly, met uh, Vicky Colbert in Doha and Qatar of all places, there's a massive conference. And she was very passionate about this. She was sort of slightly angry about, you know, the North imposing its inappropriate will on the Southern Hemisphere. And the older I've got, the more I've been in Africa twice this year. I think there's some truth in this, to be honest. You know, we've, we have screwed things up, not only for ourselves at times, but them as well. And so what she did try and do, and I think succeeded, uh, which is a really sort of enthusiastic person. And when you when you hear her talk about the Escuela, the movement, as it were, you know, Escuela Nova model, you can see why it took off. And you always have to have this leader, I think, that pushes these things, you know. And it was recognized. She won loads of awards. The World Bank were keen on funding it and so on. But at its heart is this student and student-parent approach be very sensitive to the needs of the people in that community, because most of them, this is where at the same conference, interestingly, I met Gordon Brown, who gave a good but terrible speech, saying that the sustainable goals, it was all about abstract reason for him, saying as long as we get everybody into schools, you know, and as long as you're all girls into schools, everything will be hunky-dory. This idea that you just get people into classrooms, you teach them to read and write, and that's it. And of course, that's far from it because most of them leave and don't have jobs. <laughs> and therefore, uh, you know, so you suddenly find yourself in Zimbabwe or South Africa where all the taxi drivers have degrees. And you wonder what went wrong here. And yet, you know, in some of those countries, including our own, things don't work. The world seems to be falling apart practically because we have no vocational skills. We have massive skill shortages, but no shortage in people who can critique Macbeth. So I think her view was. In her world, you you had to have this, you know, cost was a big deal. Most of these schools were crippled because the government didn't have enough money to have a state schooling system. So the view was make them really cost effective, scalable was a really important thing. She had this model that, remember, this is a model we're talking about here that was manifested in real schools that fitted into the real community. There was always a context here. The reality of everybody's life was they worked in farms and had to sell things to survive. So that's what she focused on. Uh, the teachers, there's far less direct instruction in our schools, far less rote learning, all that sort of stuff. There are all these little micro centers she created, very keen on workshops, sharing community practice across the schools, especially the teachers. There were networks of teachers that picked up on the model and took the best bits from other schools and applied them in their own. <clears throat> and then at the same time, it was highly, it was a bit like Montessori highly structured because you have all these independent self 
paste interactive modules that people do that we're familiar with, you know, with when technology delivers learnings, learning. So, but this is the important that the importance of this was in a. I remember when she explained this; it was amazing. In a rural environment, people just disappear. When the harvest comes along, people just walk out of school because you can't afford to let that fail. Same with true of planting of seeds and so on. So you have to actually build schooling around the needs of the communicate, or they just won't turn up. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in that case, you have to deal with all the absences. And if you have this self-paced interactive modular approach, you have a flexible approach to the delivery or the teaching, then it copes with any local circumstance in terms of timetable. So that obviously everywhere has a local, it was localized the agricultural calendar. Some people might do fruit picking, which is a completely different time from other types of harvest, for example, potato picking or whatever. And her profound belief, her profound belief really struck me that education is for life and making a living. It can be both. It's not just this, you know, you hear this from abstract intellectuals all the time saying, well, you know, let's keep education as a purely abstract thing, education as an end in itself. You hear this from academics a lot. Well, you know, we're destroying the educational system, the higher education system, because uh, it, it's been taken over by managerialism. And then you look around and you've got a dentistry department, you've got an engineering department, you've got a medical department, uh, a nursing department. You go, what, are you honestly tell me that these dental students are there because they're intellectually interested in the journey around teeth you know like give me a break you know they're there to make money as being for not being dentists and so i think the system itself is schizophrenic because it accepts oodles of money from people who go there you know you think people take law because they're just massively interested in the philosophy of jurisprudence or do they want to become lawyers and make a lot of money <laughs> i suspect the latter is normally the case uh, but the recognition in, in her world was that it was an agricultural economy, and we have to play to that. And she wasn't saying that's true for everybody, but it was certainly true because the, the model then was spread right through Central and Southern America. You know, you had El Salvador, Honduras, you had Philippines, similar thing, uh, Panama and Paraguay, and so on. So I think she had a point about context and not regarding, like Gordon Brown did, education is, and the World Bank's sustainability goals are all very... Northern Hemisphere, abstract and rational. And so you find that education teaches people, but doesn't solve the problem of them not living autonomous lives as adults because they can't get jobs. Hmm. It's interesting that you bring up the, the agricultural thing and the. Yeah. Because they, I, I've heard you rail before about the fact that we had this massively long summer holiday in um, yeah. Northern Hemisphere schools, uh, which was originally designed so that kids could go and help with the harvest, um, and, <coughs> you know, in, in a similar way when we were an agrarian country, which we're yeah. now very much not so. I mean, the people who pick the, yeah. uh, who get in the harvest are now, well, for a long time have been Eastern European. Um, so d- does that seem to say that in, in countries where there is still that need, it makes sense to do that? Whereas yeah. in, you know, we could easily jump that really, as long as we can air condition afford air conditioning for the schools. <laughs> yeah. um, and it's the, pro- the problem is a one-size-fits-all model just doesn't yeah. work. Well, that's right. The, it's interesting. When I was at school, we, we had the, this, the fact this week, isn't it, the October week, was the week where lots of people went picking potatoes. It was really yeah. common for, for 
parents as well, you know, they, they would have a job picking potatoes because they made a lot of money in a week. Uh, so it was still around when I was younger because we still had a partly agrarian economy. It's now all been mechanised, of course. Mm. But you're right here, and this is Vicky Colbert's point, wasn't it? We should turn, uh, we should adhere to the agricultural calendar. In fact, we've done the very opposite. We've adhered to the agricultural calendar when there is no agricultural need. Yeah. She had the very about... opposite view, <laughs> is that you... You, you, you look at the context of the community in which your kids work. Now, of course, this is where you get class coming in, of course, because many middle-class kids, people don't see their kids as being rooted in a local community at all. The people who talk most about community have least interest in it. They send their kids off to some unit. You know, like we both live in Brighton, John, but how often do the kids here go off to Manchester, Leeds, Bristol, or Exeter or something to university? Of, you know, Glasgow, Edinburgh. The the whole point is to get them out of the community, you know, free them up. There's somewhere, there's somewheres and anywhere type classes of people. Whereas working class people are much more deeply rooted in their community. I mean, both my families, you know, myself, and my wife's family, but almost everybody else still lives in and around the towns they were brought up in. It's a completely mm. different view of the world. But when we base an educational system around funneling everybody towards university, we sort of abandon and ignore the rest. And that's what's happened, I think, in our country and other countries. But at least Vicky Colbert recognized that, that that would be ridiculous in South America. And what's really interesting when you travel into what you might call two and a half or developing world, you find these hyper expensive private schools in places like Zimbabwe that are full of white kids, of course, same in South Africa. And Australia is very similar. I was absolutely shocked when I went to Melbourne. I got to speak in a couple of schools there. And they have taken this so seriously. People are desperate to get their kids into private schools there. And they have all the trappings of the British system, you know, girls wearing tartan skirts, guys blazered and tied up to the neck in 35 degrees heat. Uh, so we have, uh, we, it, it, schooling is just, one of the things emerging as we speak about this, John, schooling is just very odd, isn't it? <laughs> it is when you think about it, yes. The more you think about it, the odder it seems. <laughs> yeah. We'd better move along and um, yeah. have some more. Uh, things to think about. Yeah. Martin Burt, 1957, which makes yeah. him a contemporary, rough contemporary of ours, Donald, born in yeah. 1957, still among us. He's a Paraguayan social entrepreneur, author, former mayor of Asuncion, and former chief of staff to Paraguay's president, known for founding, uh, <laughs> the struggle again here. Uh, Fundacion Paraguaya in 1985, a leading non-profit and microfinance organization in Paraguay, and he's creator of the Poverty Stoplight, a tool that enables families to assess their own level of poverty across multiple dimensions and develop personalized strategies to overcome them, which sounds really interesting. I think I could do that at the moment. This methodology has since been adopted and replicated in various countries emphasizing Bert's influence on a global scale. I think it's interesting we're talking on a much bigger scale with these last two theorists. Think of Summerhill. It's yes, a very it's an almost negligible amount of people who went through that. Yeah. Um, you know, compared to its its massive influence. Bert studied at the University of the Pacific in Stockton, California, at George Washington University, which is in Washington, and Tulane University in New Orleans. Um, where he did a PhD in development economics and international development. And I think it's an interesting uh, context in which to talk about education 
and education theory. Throughout his career, Burt has coll collaborated with a range of international organizations and has received numerous accolades for his work, including being recognized by Ashoka and the Schwab Foundation for Social Entrepreneurship. His commitment to reshaping education and creating a world without poverty reflects his visionary approach and the tangible impact of his initiatives. So, Donald, um, can you do a compare contrast with uh, Vicky Colbert on on him and continue yeah. your compare and contrast with you know the northern northern and southern hemisphere? Yeah, very much a southern hemisphere figure. Very different. From, I also met Martin uh, Martin Burt in Doha uh, another occasion. I was hugely impressed by this guy. First of all, he was a sort of really interested in the poverty issues. You're right. These uh, this poverty spotlight thing is a later, later development by him, nevertheless important. But his his diagnosis of schooling systems was that they actually had the very opposite effect of what most people imagined was true, that they're not really meritocracies and that they trap people in sort of class structures. It's what we talked about in the Marxist episode. So you think, you think, you thought schooling really trapped people into poverty and that they were really sort of sorting mechanisms for people who could... Uh, give kids a leg up by getting them into university and giving them that big signal in their forehead and getting them into the professions. And that, of course, wasn't true in Paraguay, where he was a senior politician, you know, the mayor mm. of Sunshine, uh, you know, one off the president, as it were. Uh, he was also a successful business guy. And he was very keen of trying to solve this problem of schooling as a business. This, you know, people in England would hate that phrase. But actually, it has a great deal, you know, people in South America are not phased by this at all. He thought that schools were massively over-academic and that, uh, that, they, that it's not to say that academic subjects should not be taught, but it should be taught alongside vocational skills. Basically, like, like, you know, the sort of things in his schools were things like business, how to grow things, make cheese, ferment yogurt, and all that, all that sort of stuff. It's what people did in their real lives. is how they made a living and how they actually grew food for themselves. They were very often self-sustained communities grew their own food. But he then was quite keen in teaching them how to be quite autonomous people in terms of the personal finance, marketing whatever skills they've got, selling, customer service, all that sort of stuff. And so he was very keen on schools being, and this is where it got really interesting, in schools being little sort of mini businesses. Uh, so... Uh, he was very successful in this. Actually, he was saying, "Well, let's let's make the school. Uh, you know, the the school can be self-sustaining and sell food. The little shop store, store, and that shop would be where people would learn retail skills, for example. So he he had these farm schools that he set up all over the shop. They were pretty successful. It was really very very impressive indeed, because he was tackling the reality of poverty, not the notion that you know you want to go." get a degree for some abstract intellectual journey you may see yourself on. But, uh, of course, people don't like this view in the Northern Hemisphere, but it's quite common in the Southern Hemisphere to see this as being an important part of life, where you, you have to teach people to be autonomous in the context of their world. You know, it, it, they, these kids are not going to go into an internship in Deloitte's. <laughs> you know, it's not going to happen. So what is their life? Well, they live in the countryside, they live in the farming community, they have to sell their goods. Let's focus it on their needs. And I greatly admire this because I've seen a lot of imposition of Northern Hemisphere educational values, goals, structures, universities and colleges in the Southern Hemisphere, and it has not worked. If you take Africa as an example, the one I know best, 
everywhere you go in Africa, you know, go to Ethiopia, the Chinese have built everything because they have no plumbers and builders and skilled people in Ethiopia because they have no educational system that promotes vocational skills. But they do have lots of universities that produce graduates who then end up largely as taxi drivers. I mean, it's a, it's a caricature to a degree, but there's a lot of truth in this. And so I think something has gone badly wrong here, which is why I like to include you know, Vicky Colbert and, Mar uh, and Martin Burt in, in this group. Yeah. Because I think they show an alternative vision that's not based on our northern prejudices. I think it's a, it's a really interesting comparison you're making here with northern and, and southern hemispheres and the way education is shaped there and, and the way these initiatives are played there as opposed to uh, the northern hemisphere where the, some of the previous ones seemed like experiments um that don't really get kind of assessed very well uh and it's hard to see that they have a, a very widespread effect mm. on the other hand having said that it, it would be you know rather dangerous to 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 fall into a a, a strict binary there and yeah true. there has been development in the education system since you know we we were youths and some of that has done a, a lot of good so probably time now to move towards summing up. Donald, you showed us these variety of experiments or alternatives, um, as we, we could call them. I just want to go back to the root of this and, and what is being held on to, it seems, in your kind of summary of what's wrong with the Northern Hemisphere education, is Arnold's vision, really, of culture and, and, and of kind of educating people to take part in this kind of bourgeois cult culture and so on. Uh, and then you start to get um, people who, who who kind of vary from that. And I mentioned that the, the mysticism was also to do with Dover Beach. You know, Dover Beach shows godless universe, people lose faith in, you know, the, 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 the established church in Britain kind of gets its hands pulled off from around the throat of society, mm. um, I know we still have bishops in the Lords and so on, but but generally, uh, religion isn't so much of a touch touchstone as it was for morality after Darwin and, and Dover Beach. And one of the effects of this is for people to lurch off into the occult, um, which is where we get that kind of interest in theosophy and Alistair Crowley and so on, which is still bumping around in the alternative counterculture of, of the 60s 70s and 80s and you know i come across a lot of that <laughs> I, I must yeah. admit in 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 my life um another thing another kind of effect of the um the dover beach syndrome if we're going to call it that i think is that people want to find a moral basis for their educational systems and we see a variety of these here with kind of not so much with montessori which i, I suppose is more practical but but certainly with Summerhill. Um, it, 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 as you say, it goes back to Rousseauan values, um, uh, something which isn't a Christian morality. Uh, and in the Southern Hemisphere um, examples you've given, there's a very strong moral impetus there towards um, towards eliminating poverty and working mm -hmm. on the roots of poverty within communication within communities, and using education to do that and changing it to make it more fit for purpose. For that, so if if we look at that in the round, how much are the people that you've 
brought together in this group, although it's a very disparate group, how much has that actually changed education? Yeah, what, what can we learn from them? You mentioned Dover Beach there. I, I know we had communication in this, but uh, this was just last Sunday when I took my dog for a walk with my wife, Jill, and we, we were walking back in a little village near Brighton called Seaford. Oh, yeah. And uh, there was a plaque on the wall to Herman, Herman Eddinghouse. Yes. I was absolutely astonished because we've given a, we did a whole podcast on this, John. Way in back fact, it's the where the podcast started. Our first <laughs> episode was yes. about cognitivists. And I think it started with, with Ebbinghouse. That's right. You're absolutely right. That's the first, very first person we discussed. And it was interesting because it, I wrote a little bit about it. And curiously, I put the, because I love that poem, Dover Beach. Just, yeah. I think it's actually a masterpiece of poetry. You know, it's, it's melancholy, I can't remember why. It's melancholy, but it's melancholy bringing the long withdrawing roar. You know, that sound of people dragging yeah. away at the world and that we just drift through the world unaware of the fact that the true heartbeat one is one of nihilism and so on. It's an amazing piece of work. But what can we learn from these four people? Well, I think there's something quite interesting here. One is that the we're sort of trapped, I think, in a very one-size-fits-all state schooling system, and I include the private schooling system in this as well. Uh, and what happened was things trapped us even further with the PISA and that horrific, beware of big bureaucrats bringing in systems that start to impose a one-size-fits-all on the whole globe. <laughs> That's what PISA did. I absolutely hate that initiative. Uh, you know, because when it, it says it looks at schooling globally, but it doesn't really. It's, it is the Northern Hemisphere model. Get your kid to uni is the model sort of thing there. But I think something very interesting has happened, John, that I'd like to dwell upon, maybe to round up here, is that some of the promise of those things that we've mentioned and the people we've discussed are happening not through establishing an alternative progressive schooling system, a la Burke, Colbert, Neil Montessori, Steiner, but in, and this is really happening big time in the US at the moment, there, is, there has been a steady decrease in college enrollments for the last 13 years in a row, and it's quite considerable. Uh, that has also been matched more recently by dramatic falls in faith in the educational system as being relevant, worth the cost, and so on. So we see a crisis in relevance in the US and the college system and the schooling that funnels everybody towards it. We see a crisis in assessment because of AI hitting it. We see in schools in the UK a crisis even in attendance. That's been accompanied by a rise of homeschooling because you now have technology like AI that can allow you to teach kids to your maths without you knowing any mathematics. And at the same time in society, we have uh, pretty much full employment but massive skill shortages. So I've been flying around all over the place in the last few months. And, you know, the system is barely surviving, whether it's your, the chances you get your, your flight delayed or the air traffic controllers have gone ill and we don't have enough of them or something has gone wrong. The world is sort of falling apart because we have a lack of skilled people in the middle ground, but no shortage of graduates at the upper level who have, who now, of course, are massively underemployed. Uh, so doing things that they didn't really need a degree for. Now, that's not to say a degree is not useful as and in itself. But as I say, education should perhaps be for both a life, an end in itself, and a living. There's no 
arm in that. Universities, after all, produce dentists, lawyers, engineers, and doctors. So they, it's always been the case since Bologna in the Middle Ages. Uh, but I think now we're looking at perhaps, I, I personally think there will be a bit of a resetting. I think this AI stuff is so, I mean, it's so different, so powerful, will have such an impact on productivity, especially in education and healthcare. It changes the whole nature of work and therefore what you learn, why you learn and how you learn. I think this may be one of the deep drivers that affect a change just as printing did in the late 15th, early 16th century, when we had the rise of mass schooling. And we go back to what I said at the beginning. You have the rise of mass schooling on the, and mass textbook, massive one-size-fits-all methodologies in schools that was reinforced further through the Industrial Revolution. I think it's a revolution in that scale. When you're studying history, you know, most people like to go back to the Second World War or something, get fascinated by that. Actually, the most relevant period in history that we should be studying in terms of us is probably the 16th century. Uh, when, when printing comes of age, really, and spreads like wildfire around Europe first, then the rest of the world. And some societies like the Ottoman Empire ban it, so don't grow and develop others take it up with a gusto, and then, however, the invention of printing has this double-edged sword effect. We send our kids off at age five, as I say, they pop out. Now they have to do a master's degree, you know, whatever age they pop out at university now, having never worked practically anywhere on anything, many of them, not all of them. I, I think that's weird, and all they do for those years is really read and write. Read, critique text, write text, write essays, write this, read that. That's weird to me now. I think we may be looking at what can we learn from these people that actually learning should be much more contextualized by the real world we live in and solving the skill shortages, not in an instrumental way, but also the ethical issues. So I think really education is now one of the drivers behind the stretching of inequalities. The more, the more bureaucratic, structured, university-driven education we have, the more this elastic stretches and the poor get poorer and the rich get richer. Remember, it was the business schools of the US, and I remember teaching in Wharton, and you know, these people were deluded. The idea that the, the business schools, and I remember going to the conferences and seeing you know, the chief exec, Jack Walsh of GES on live speaking. They said, we're going to destroy jobs in the US and outsource it all to China. They actually said that. And they, yes, did, they did. They did it. It happened. I know. And then, of course, the university say, well, it wasn't our fault. <laughs> they say, well, hold on a minute. Those business schools where you make all your money are not your fault. You say, you're a bit, being a bit sort of cherry-picking here. Yeah. They actually did it. And then you wonder why they've got Trump. And then the graduate class looks down at all the people who voted for Trump, blaming them and themselves. You get, and the same happened, I think, in the UK with Brexit and so on. I think we have a big fan of John Gray on this stuff. You know, I, I, you know, I, think, I think education has started to exacerbate inequalities. And uh, there's a reaction against that quite rightly. And I put myself very much in the camp that wants to change it because I think it's gone too far and that it's leading to social strife and social inequalities that societies are finding it hard to bear. I mean, we have extreme poverty in this country and you need only walk from where we are sitting now, uh, <clears throat> you know, for 15, 20 minutes to hit people who are homeless in our town. Mm -hmm. And it's common, I mean, really common. Uh, begging is just the norm now. That's and shoplifting as well. It's sort of yes, on the exactly. Rise. Yeah. And young people have a completely different 
outlook on it. They, they kind of think it's fair enough because none of no young people have got any money anymore. Donald, There's I think we've, we've got to, you've really set us up well for the rest of the season, season here because the next thing we're going to cover is critics of schools. Yeah. Um, formidable critic yourself. You're going to introduce us to uh, some other critics at critics of schools. It, and it won't be completely negative, folks. Don't worry. Um, and then after that, we're coming on to the other thing you mentioned there, which is AI and generative AI, which we'll be covering at the uh, OEB conference live. Um, yeah. And look forward to meeting some of you face to face. But for now, uh, I think we need to bring it to a close. Thank you very much, Donald. Thank you, John. Great Minds on Learning comes from the Learning Hack team and is produced by John Helmer. The podcast is based on a series of blog posts written by Donald Clark, and we thank Donald for his kind collaboration in this project. If you'd like text summaries and transcripts for these podcasts, as well as ads-free listening, early access to episodes and more, why not join the Learning Hack Pack? For less than the price of a coffee, you can get all these benefits and help to sustain us into the future. Go to patreon.com forward slash learning hack for a seven day free trial. That's patreon.com forward slash learning hack.